Welcome, everybody, to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined today by our professor of systematic theology, Dr. Gray Sutanto, our professor of Old Testament and dean of students, Dr. Peter Lee, and our academic dean, Dr. Tommy Keene and professor of New Testament. And we're talking through this series where we're dealing with the Apostles' Creed and, and the articles of this great old creed that has for so many years kind of formed the outer boundaries of the Christian faith, as it were. It's, it's this creed that's been used to sort of articulate what we might call a kind of mere Christianity. And it's been a great discussion over the last couple of months as we've been sort of dealing with, it's interesting, some of the things that, that came out in the early church as distinctively Christian beliefs. And we talked about why some of, some of those things might be mentioned in the creed. What do they draw our attention to as worshipers and followers of Jesus Christ? And how do they really form the, the outline of the Christian faith? And so we're at the point now where we've just talked about Christ's resurrection and ascension, okay, following his death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, to the heavenly throne room, to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And then we come to this really fascinating article, right? Uh, this is the last article in the section dealing with the Son, dealing with Jesus. And it says, from there, from his place of authority in the heavenly throne room, he will come to judge and I always want to say the quick and the dead because of the tradition I was raised in. Um, but you know, the modern language is he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so, of course, he's laying hold in this, in this creed, laying hold of this belief that there is a kind of ethical terminus, right? There's, a, there's this terminus in terms of right and wrong, of justice and mercy, and, it, and this terminus is found in this final judgment where all who have ever lived, whether they're alive in those days or they've died in the past, all who have ever lived, every human being, will be judged by God. And interesting here, according to the creed, judged by Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is uh, an important doctrine. It's one that's clearly present in the New Testament. You know, the, your mind goes to passages like Matthew 25, where Jesus himself talks about his role uh, as judge in the final judgment and the people coming before him and, and ways in which they'll be evaluated. But this isn't merely a Jesus idea. This is not merely a New Testament idea. We find the roots of this doctrine going all the way back to the Old Testament, don't we? So uh, let me start with that. Dr. Lee, could, could you kind of walk us through a sort of Old Testament doctrine of final judgment? Uh, where do we see hints of it, suggestions, you know, adumbrations and anticipations of it? And uh, give us a little bit of the background that we need to understand this doctrine. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, Scott. It's not just a New Testament thing, and, and I think people may uh, mistakenly see that the New Testament is just fulfilling something that was anticipated in the Old. I, I guess if, if, we're, if there's a place to start in the Isaiah to Malachi materials, you know, the, the prophets oftentimes will speak of the day of the Lord, which is essentially judgment day. That's what we're talking about here, and how uh, there is a coming day uh, of the Lord. Uh, where the wicked, both individual and even corporately nations, are going to face the judgment seat of God. 
that uh, there is going to come a time when the wicked who you thought were getting away with wickedness are, are actually not getting away with anything. This is where uh, they face the ultimate judge and now make accounts for their uh, for their actions before his holy presence. So it is, a, you know, and Judgment Day, as you know, is sort of a, a, a double-edged event. It is it is judgment that is condemnation against the wicked. It's also the day of, of our vindication of the, or the victory uh, for, for those who held and, and clung on to Christ or to the Lord by faith. Uh, I, as I'm thinking about it more, actually, it dawned on me that, um, you know, even Judgment Day or the Day of the Lord and the Prophets is actually anticipated uh, way back even in the garden, right there in Genesis 3, where, you know, there's that really cryptic phrase there that after... Adam took of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the the Lord came in the cool of the day. The Hebrew there, as you know, is actually the spirit of the day, kind of alluding to the function of the spirit in the uh, original covenant of works as a, as a covenant witness. He is coming as judge. The spirit of the day is judgment day. So it's not like it was a windy day, and that was the context in which the Lord came now to to Adam after violating covenant, you know, he violated covenant. The Lord is coming to do exactly his work as judge. And uh, I know my teacher, Meredith Klein, has actually suggested that the phrase day of the Lord finds its origins actually in Genesis 3.8, in that spirit of the day. And, you know, the, the day of the Lord and the prophets, as you know, it, it is interesting. You get these words of blessing and then words of condemnation as if it's all happening on just one day in the prophets. And, and so when the, from the Old Testament perspective, as they're looking to this day of the Lord, they're so, sort of seeing one event that both are going to happen, the, the vindication of the, uh, of the righteous and the judgment against the wicked. Uh, we now know that sort of parsed out into two parts. That day of the Lord is actually sort of a part A coming with Christ, and then the part B with the final now judgment day that comes a little bit later. We tend to parse it out as two events, really, but it's really just two parts of the one event uh, of the one day uh, of the Lord, in the manner of speaking. And so, so there, I mean, the Old Testament clearly alludes to that idea. The New Testament is just kind of uh, affirming that idea and how that day, to a certain degree, has come with Christ. And yet there is still a future day of final judgment that'll come uh, with Jesus's return. Yeah, it's interesting to me how the New Testament authors don't even feel like they have to explain it. They say the day of the Lord is now, you know, like Joel 2, the day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes, the spirit will be poured out. Peter says, here it is in uh, Pentecost. And yet they'll, they'll just transition into using that phraseology day of the Lord again now to talk about that future return of Christ, you know, kind of in, in an implicit way introducing this already not yet aspect, this kind of idea of we're in the day of the Lord and we're waiting for the day of the Lord. But another thing I want to highlight about what you said is this idea that the judgment that's coming is, is a cause for hope and comfort for Israel, right? Or it ought to be. There's places like Amos where the prophet says, don't hope for it because this is going to be your judgment, right? But remember the idea of the day of the Lord, of this, of this coming judgment is that justice will be done and therefore you sufferers don't have to suffer forever right and that's the that's the importance of it is that it's a sure thing the day of the lord is coming it's a sure thing and whether it's assyrians or babylonians or the you know the, the apostate amongst you in jerusalem there will come a time when that suffering that oppression will be judged and that's a cause for hope and a cause for comfort 
which is not the way we think about it often now. Usually the idea of the final judgment is something that people get nervous about and they don't want to talk about it because it seems maybe mean spirited or something. But you have to remember this is this is for the justice of the Lord being implemented for the sake of those who are suffering. And yeah, that's such an important thing. I remember, you know, uh, to a certain degree, you can almost test someone's um, end times views by just their their temperament, their anticipation of it. Are they fearful of it? Do they do they not want it to come? If it's that, then you, there's something not right about the way that they're viewing the last days here. For those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Romans eight one. It's not a day of fear for us. It's a day of expected hope. We long for it. We want it. You know, we want it to come now. But that day is also a day of judgment for those who are outside of Christ. But as long as we know and remember that we are in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. This is a great day. So I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It does seem to me kind of unfortunate that this sort of expected hope is oftentimes looked at with uh, some fear. Uh, that makes no sense. Yeah, there's there's so much packed in there, Peter. I, I, I love hearing you say that. I, the first thing it makes me want to talk about is uh, the why of this being a day of hope. And But I, I think there's also a point to be made that this is true. This is particularly a day of comfort for the believer, and we should want that, you know, for Paul Paul saying, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Like this, this is the moment in which we will be comforted, in which the oppressor will be put to flight. There's also a sense that unbelievers want this. I mean, we, as Scott mentioned, we don't often associate judgment with a thing of beauty and a thing of in which we want to hope. But I, I was on my run. I do run. I was on my run uh, recently and I passed by a house that had Christmas lights still up, no judgments, but it wasn't traditional Christmas lights. It was no peace on earth, but justice. And it was, you know, there's clearly a kind of a polemical tone and a political tone to that. But it was a reminder to me that even kind of outside our Christian bubble, people do want justice. We do not want a world that is spinning out of control and that there is no hope. But whether from a Christian perspective or a more secular perspective, we can say, no, you you want, you know, a, a father that gets angry at sin. You want somebody to intercede for the oppressor. We, we want somebody to, um, to be angry when covenants are broken, when relationships are sundered, and to, and to bring not only justice, but healing in those moments. And we as Christians can call others and say, that's what our final judgment is. It's not hellfire and brimstone. It's re-knitting together the heavens and, and, and the earth in a way that glorifies God and benefits his emissaries. That's exactly right, Tommy. You know, I was lurking on Twitter a little bit too long yesterday because I was sent a link by uh, James Eglinton, out of all people. Yeah, but you get, um, there and you get out, man. Just take a That's right. I, I lurked, I lurked, and I lurked probably for way too long. But I've noticed how much outrage there is on Twitter. You know, there's always something that somebody's angry about. And I think that vindicates what we see in Romans chapter one, that we feel and sense that there is something wrong that's going on with our world. But the thing is, when you don't have God in the back of your worldview, you're going to end up saying that what's wrong is something within creation. So people say, well, the education system is wrong. Or people say another race is exactly what's wrong. And that's the root of racism. Or people say now that the institutions, the political institutions are exactly what's wrong with the world. But without 
getting back to the root of all things, which is sin, we won't get this feeling of resolution that we all need, don't we? Because we, we see that once we've resolved a particular issue, we've taken care of one part of the institution, or we've talked to that person and we thought that something was resolved, another thing would always come up. So even though we're trying to fix something, we have been more technologically advanced now, we've, we're way more educated now, we're more historically attuned now, yet still we feel that there is something that is constantly going wrong. And so you're exactly right. We need the sense of final, ultimate judgment that actually makes all things right, that would undo the wrong things and that would actually vindicate those who are in the right and would make all the things that are sad, to be honest, right, just go away and make everything renewed again. Yeah, the outrage that I've seen on social media is actually kind of confirming to me that even though our culture says we don't believe in moral values, we say we don't want judge, that actually we do. But like you said, Gray, without God, all we've got is anger fighting anger. All, all we've got is just ultimately outrage. We're left with Nietzsche, right? We're left with the solution to oppression and power is a greater power. It, it is, you know, disenfranchisement. It's, it's the void, right? Uh, nihilism, which brings back, you know, how did this judge get the right to judge? How did this man get appointed for this purpose? And, uh, and I go to back to the gospels. I go back to, uh, you know, what Jesus tells us, not, not the father will judge, but that belongs to the son. And he earns that right. He receives that right to judge because of the kind of death he died. This is why judgment is a beautiful thing in the Christian tradition, because our Lord submitted to judgment, was judged, was vindicated. And he then, as the true man who knows what it is to suffer, what it is to suffer under the curse, what it is to experience temptation in every way, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, this is the one that is appointed to judge, not the detached ruler, but the one who understands our weaknesses and who has invited us to receive his forgiveness because he has died this kind of death. And so there is this hope in judgment that is beyond any sort of secular hope. Right. And, you know, I've heard it said so many times that Christians who believe in a final judgment makes Christians more angry, more judgmental, and it makes us into more violent people when actually that's exactly the opposite. When you don't have final judgment, then justice becomes a matter of our own hands. We have to take justice into what we have to do. And like you said, Tommy, that becomes authoritarian because who are we finite people that we are? And we know that we're finite to judge other people when we know that deep inside we too have wronged one another in deep ways and we have made of our own faults. So actually, when you take a look at, for example, First Peter and Tommy, I'm sure you could talk more about this. When you take a look at how the judgment of God functions there, right, it's actually supposed to invoke in Christians a deep sense of patience because we don't have the right to judge. We don't have the wisdom to judge. We don't know exactly what people deserve. We don't have the power to judge because we can't mete out the judgment as God would be able to. And so actually the judgment of God says that we Christians should leave it up to him, right? He will take care of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, God says. And so that actually makes Christians out of all people at least ideally, if we were all perfectly sanctified, the most patient people, especially against our wrongdoers. That's why we can actually turn the other cheek, as Jesus said. Yeah, First Peter's a great connection there. My, my head actually uh, went to uh, James. I mean, because you were talking Twitter and outrage and kind of an immediate practical application on, on uh, social media uh, and, and how we talk to each other on social media would be 
you know, from James 1. Uh, there's some translation issues here, but we're told in, in James 1, know this, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And there's a couple of ways to read that phrase, righteousness of God, but I'm convinced that it, it's a good translation, if not the only translation, is the justice of God. Like our anger, our outrage, does not produce God's justice. It's not a replacement for God's justice. And as a result, we are called to, even, even with our speech, to wait. Now, that's not that we don't call out sin. That's not that we don't proclaim the truth, et cetera, et cetera. But we shouldn't be under the illusion that me being angry is going to bring about a solution to the world's problems. That requires us to continue to preach the gospel, to continue to call out evil, but to wait for God to bring resolution. I love that when God reveals himself to Moses in, in the cleft of the rock, you know, back in Exodus 34, he, he sings this song about his name, right? Where he's, he's moving in front of Moses and he's saying the Lord, the Lord. And there's this like song, this paean as it were to his own name, describing his attributes. And it starts with his compassion, right? And showing him mercy. And then the very next thing is that he talks about his justice, right? That this is a part of the divine character that, is, is getting worked out in the world around us and should be a cause for hope. It's interesting, as you all have highlighted, that Christians often blow past the justice side to get to the compassion side, right? And it's, it's, it's as if justice is just there to show us why we need Jesus to be saved and not to actually glory in it. But for all those reasons that you all have pointed out, and I think, it, I think you're absolutely right in James and in first Peter, you know, the reason why the believing wife can be generous to her unbelieving husband, right. Or the believing worker can be generous to his unbelieving you know, patriarch in the family, you know, is because, right. He trusts in the justice of the Lord. It actually gives you a place of empowerment in a world where there is oppression to be generous and faithful because you know, it doesn't, as you said, you know, it's not going to be answered by your own anger, but you should give expression to your own just, you know, to the justice of God in your life. You should get express, you should give expression to it and the things that you value and speaking the truth. But it strikes me like even over the course of my life, that's changed, right? That there, there was a, there was a time early on where I remember even as recently as 15 years ago or so pastors really, you know, kind of navel gazing over how do we talk about sin in a world that doesn't believe in sin, right? And yet, if you look at the most recent last couple of years, I mean, one thing we're all assured of is sin now, it seems like we're all assured of the reality of offense. Now, we may not define it exactly the way it's defined in scripture, but it's interesting to me, you can't keep that need or that desire for justice down in the, in the human heart. Uh, it, it comes out one way or another. Right. And that that as Christians, we can say, yeah, that's because we're made in the image of God that reflect, we're reflecting his character. And that includes his character of being just. You know, and when we think of God's character, there's maybe even another angle. I think I'm stealing this from Tim Keller, but I don't know exactly who I'm stealing it from. But I think the point is well made, whoever first made it, that uh, justice is a function, not of some sort of kind of meticulousness in God or just his anger, but actually it's a function of his love. And it's why he, he loves the world. He loves his creation. He loves his people. And his justice is a way of expressing that love. 
think of, you know, your, your children, if your children are harmed, if your children are, you know, hurt or bullied in some way, and they come back to you and the parents are apathetic about that, that's not good. You want the parents to be angry. You want to, the parents to reach out in love to their kid and to act in space and time to bring about some sort of justice or resolution or, or guide them in some way, not because the parent is just an angry parent, but the parent, because the parent loves their child. And that kind of way of thinking about judgment, I think restores a, a proper way. It's not that just God is up there scowling at the world. No, God is love and love and justice go together. So let me ask you all this. How does the Christian then who is facing final judgment along with all of humanity, how does the Christian find hope in that? We've talked about forgiveness, right? We've talked about there being no condemnation. Walk me through the, the algebra, okay? How, do, how does that show your work as my math teacher used to always tell me, you know, and highlighting the fact that I've been using a calculator the whole time and couldn't show my work. All right, so how, how do we... How do we get there, right? How is it that a Christian, the elect, can look at final judgment and not see it as their utter condemnation? I think that's a great question, Scott. I think it comes back to the analogy that we had used in our previous episode where we talked about Jesus Christ being our head. And in the previous episode, when we talked about him seated at the right hand of God. And he's up there that actually gives us comfort precisely because if our head is again above water, right? The rest of the body inevitably would also be alive, right? In other words, Jesus Christ being our head, the head of the church in heaven is an assurance for us that we too would be there with him. We, his bride, we, his body. And so when he comes back down to just living in the dead, he will come to his own people, namely his own body, and he will resurrect us in the same way that he too has been resurrected. If he was the first fruits of the resurrection, he was resurrected when he comes back to just living in the dead. We too, who are united in him by the Holy Spirit, would be resurrected with him in righteousness, precisely because the Spirit has sanctified us, the Spirit has regenerated us, had given us the down payment of that new life that is coming before us. And I think another thing we got to point out there too is that this is our only cause, therefore, not only for, for hope, yes, and also for a sense of vindication and justice and finality, but also I think humility precisely because only the Christian doctrine of final judgment can make the religion's believers look to that final judgment and yet be humble at the same time, precisely because we realize that we too should have been judged, that we were once not in Christ, that we were only saved by grace. And so we in our natural state actually belongs under the wrath of God, and not with Christ. And so when Christ comes in the final judgment, is there a sense of joy, happiness, vindication? Absolutely. But at the same time, there's a kind of sober-mindedness to it, which causes us to look at the final judgment and say, I could have been judged too. And praise the Lord that that judgment had been taken on by my head on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I think in another religion, perhaps, uh, in, a, in, a, in a righteousness-based religion, a works-based religions. I think we could take a look at the final judgment and say, ha, I am the best of all people. And there they are. They're going to be judged. And I am better than them. That's my vindication. So the Christian view of vindication is not, I am better than them in my own self, but rather because Christ had died for me, I too can, can be raised up with him. And that's a very different view. That's so important too. I, lo I love how you said that. It, it's as if when we, when we come to Christ, 
right? And, and you use that Pauline language, we die. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. We've come, coming to Christ is in a way coming to your final judgment, right? Your final judgment is being meted out, but on Christ, right? The idea of substitution, penal substitutionary atonement, you know, this idea that, and, and I think that's why it's an important doctrine, is that you're, everyone is going to have the final judgment, right? Everyone has to go through it, okay? For those in Christ, it is meted out on the cross, right? That's that kind of beginning part. And then, then everything you said about the resurrection, the spirit of Christ living within you, you know, the head being above water, all of that then is the inheritance that we get to receive as a result of it. And it's such a beautiful message. I think a lot of Christians don't realize that. I think they have this idea that, well, God just forgives and forgets or something like that, right? And, and, it, and that's not how God's justice works. It has, to be, it has to be meted out. And that's why it's so important that Christ is our substitution in that way. I wonder if there's also a sense in which we can look at the, uh, you know, the, the, the judgment against the wicked as a, a satisfaction of, of the love of God, but our love for God. In other words, you know, I think we have to remember, you know, justice is done against sin, which is a, a, an affront to the Lord whom we love. You know, if, if my children's friends were saying derogatory things about me, you know, if they're right, then I'd like to think my children will, you know, kind of correct me <laughs> maybe as a father but uh, uh but if they're wrong i'd like to think that they're going to be not just trying to correct but be angered by the fact that you know false things were said about me as their dad whom they love you know you know i we i think we have to remember that you know the injustice is an affront to the lord and we want to see his holiness his glory vindicated and it will be on judgment day after all, you know, it's sort of like it, there's a line in Psalm 51 that always kind of I found shocking uh, where, you know, Psalm 51, the historical setting of Bathsheba, Uriah, these horrible things that David did to these people around him. But yet David's confession was against you and you only did I sin, which clearly was not right. But in the sense that sin is first and foremost an affront to the Lord and how above all things is an affront to the Lord. Uh, that we want to see the Lord vindicated is also a, a, a comforting thought. It allows us to be able to um, live holding to the honor and the glory of God. That's a great word. And that's a, that's a great note to end on, Dr. Lee. Um, I always enjoy these conversations, friends, and it always deepens my experience of this creed that I'm saying every Sunday uh, in worship. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful way to sit back and actually reflect on some of these words that we use so kind of breezily in the Christian life and yet perhaps don't come back and actually think about what the implications of them are. Thanks everyone for being a part of this conversation. Uh, I've enjoyed it deeply and look forward to continuing it next week. Until then, take care. By the way, just thinking ahead, uh, we're coming to a close here with the Apostles' Creed. Do we have a plan for what we're going to do after this? We're going to talk about the virtues of Peter Lee.
we um i i think it's gonna be a one episode podcast <laughs> half but um sorry i had to drop uh, no, no, no. 99 99 well just a, I, I guess you know we're not we don't have to if you need to leave <laughs>